morning. If you will, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. It'll be on the screens, but if you want to turn there in your own Bible, then we'd love for you to do that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and he, his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of the throne of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we get, get to have this time each week together around as your people and to, to hear your word proclaimed, to unpack it together. Lord, and I pray that your spirit would apply it to our hearts and our minds and our actions in the week ahead. Transform us to be more like Jesus. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We've all had that experience of, uh, you know, middle of the night uh, in a dark room, asleep, and someone flips on the light all of a sudden, um, and, and it, it's blinding, right? And, and there's probably, we, you know, we're different people, uniquely wired, so like, we, there's a range of responses that, that, that we probably have. Some of us just like turn over, flip the covers over our head, um, and then maybe we mumble under our breath and grumble at someone. Um, others may throw things and yell at people, right? And, and uh, they're like, what in the world are you doing? And maybe even call someone a name, right? Um, particularly growing up, that might have been your response to your siblings, okay? Um, but um, today, like thinking about light and darkness, the reason I start there is because Jesus says that he is the light of the world, come into the darkness of the world. That he is truth and revelation um, for a dark world. And that his people are to be that light as well. And if that's true, if, if we are light in darkness, then there may be responses like um, a physical light coming into darkness with people, 
right? That's, as Peter says, there may be suffering for doing good. Saying, don't be surprised by that. That for some, not all, he says, if, if God wills, that, that you may end up suffering for doing good. You may suffer for righteousness' sake. And this isn't just a problem for <clears throat> like those outside of us. It's, it can also be a problem for us. We, at the end of the day, we all struggle to respond with new revelation or new truth that comes our way, with new light that comes in on dark parts of our hearts. Church, we're not, we're not immune to that. All right, we, we can respond, humanity tends to respond in a variety of ways when, when light is shown on the dark parts of our lives, whether it's truth or just the, the dark parts of the things that we do. We, sometimes we respond with, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes we respond with denial. We don't, we don't even want to think about it, we just deny that it's a reality. Sometimes we go looking for other things that would, that would uh, actually confirm the opposite, right? Confirmation bias. We want, to, we want to confirm what we already believe to be true, and so we go out seeking other sources of information that would deny that initial source of truth that we encountered, the new light shining on our hearts. Other times we feel simply like the light that's shining on us is a direct attack against us, right? That's when we grab the shoe and we throw it across the room at our sibling for turning the light on in the first place. Right? But, but we do that because a lot of times what we, um, the parts of the truth we believe to be true, even if it's false, like, like it's, we feel like it's part of who we are. And so we feel like we're attacked. Someone's attacking us. And th- there's a variety of ways we can, re- we can respond. And church, it's not just a problem out there, but it's a problem that we can have. Because if there's truth to this Christianity thing, and i believe there is, if there's truth to this Christianity thing, don't be surprised that it's abrasive to our natural sensibilities as sinners, as people in rebellion against the light. Church, this is true for those of us that have been walking with Jesus for years. If we aren't still being challenged by God and his word and his people, then the reality is is we've just crafted a God in our own image and found our own comfortable little echo chamber to kind of settle down in. We will, until Jesus comes back, we should be, continue to be challenged and to have light shown on different parts of our lives, our mind and our heart. And it will be abrasive to us. But if you're just checking Jesus out, if you're just curious about this Jesus and this Christianity thing, you should also expect to be challenged by the way of Jesus and by the truth of Jesus. As much as you are coaxed and attracted to, to maybe the love that you see in Jesus and the, and the, the beautiful um, aspects, look, his way and his truth are just as beautiful, but they can be abrasive at times. Because when light shines on to dark places, it can be abrasive. Know, if you're checking out this Christianity thing, that, that none of Jesus' people, including myself, live up to his way and his truth in his life. We don't. We fall short every day, and that's why All of us need him, and we never move on from needing him. But let me be clear, in this calling to be light, and this calling of, of, we'll talk about as a counterculture of light and darkness that we're going to talk about today, I'm not promoting or excusing people simply being, all right, we all know of those churches, all right, maybe one in Westboro, uh, Westboro Baptist Church, or or others that, that are just known for essentially being jerks for Jesus. Even if, if there's truth to their message at times from, from some places, but, but the manner in which they go about it, um, they're just jerks for Jesus. And they kind of pat themselves on the back for that. 
What we're talking about here today is not that. What we're talking about here today is becoming a people who embody light in the darkness, a people who are distinct and life-giving to the culture around us, and a people that are unsurprised by the fact that some will find us abrasive at times, but that we will also be filled with a hopeful hopeful expectation that we will be attractive and life-giving to many. It will be helpful, just like dark light shining in a dark place keeps us from stubbing our toe in the middle of the night. It may, may be a little abrasive at first for our eyes, but it's really helpful in the long run. That's what we're talking about, because light is a good thing. This is the expectation and calling we've, we've really been unpacking for the past few weeks, starting in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, a call to embody what it means when Jesus describes his people as salt and light, a call to be a counterculture called to be a counterculture. I want to, I want to take us back to 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 to give us the big picture and then we'll zoom in on our text, all right? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The first clue that Peter is, is shifting gears here into, okay, this is now, he'd been talking about your identity and the amazing salvation that we have in Christ, and he's shifting gears here and pointing out our identity as sojourners and exiles to remind us that we live in a culture that's not our home and that we should be distinct and different. And then he goes on to talk about the, the passions of the flesh that we need to leave behind that we share with the culture around us um, and, and then how we're then to live and why. But it's ultimately, it is, those two verses are a call to be a countercultural people, a light in a darkness. And they're really the, the summary um, of where the rest of chapter 2 and 3 go. It's really kind of the, the banner under which all the other bullet points live. All right? And so what, what we'll see is we have this call to be a countercultural people. And then as Nick talked about the, the next couple of passages um, two weeks ago, he said, um, we're a countercultural citizens. How are we to live in relation to our government? We're to be a countercultural citizen. And then in chapter 2, 18 through 25, we're, we're, we're to be in the workplace, countercultural employees or employers. And then last week, as Matt addressed marriage, we're to, be, we're to have countercultural marriages as husbands and wives that look distinct from the world. And yeah, it's uncomfortable and abrasive because it's different and distinct, but, but it's to be light and darkness. And then Chapter 3, verses 8 through 22, where we are today, we're called to be a countercultural community. And we know he's not just talking about specific roles that we have in society or family anymore, but rather a call to the whole church here, um, because he says, finally, all of you, in verse 8. So he's, he's saying, whether you're married or not, like whatever roles you play, like this is for everyone in the church. We're called to be a countercultural community, a church that is distinct and life-giving to the world around us. And so the question is, what is that specific call of this countercultural community? What, what does that look like? What are we shooting for? What's the target? And here's the big idea of verses 8 to 22. That we're becoming a people of peace in a culture of chaos. We're called to become a people of peace in a culture of chaos and Peter's unpacking what it looks like to be in the process of becoming a people of peace in a culture of chaos. How timely is that? 
for us today. I think 1 Peter's timely in so many ways across the board. It's why we're walking through it as a church, just verse by verse and chapter by chapter. But, but think about how timely this idea is, that we would be a people of peace in a culture of chaos. And if we've ever in our lifetimes experienced chaos as a culture, it's now. Think about it. We have a division in our nation that continues to intensify because reviling, as Peter puts it in verse 9, is returned with reviling on both sides. Like, like everyone's guilty of this, all right? Like, like it doesn't, conservative, liberal doesn't get you out of this. Like we're all guilty of this. And what reviling does is it's this idea of actually dehumanizing the other side. Dehumanizing. Demonizing them, calling them names of, of subhuman names like pigs or whatever it might be. And, and when we dehumanize people and we, we lessen them from the image of God that they've been created in, like we set up for all kinds of more spiral out of control and into chaos. Like that's why people then respond with, with violence on, on both sides we've seen it, right? And we've seen responded with, with, with just, it escalates. When reviling is returned with reviling, you just see an escalation happen over time. And that's what we're seeing all around us, this culture of chaos. Additionally, anxiety is responded with more anxiety. It's responded to from a place of anxiety. Outrage is responded to with outrage. Despair is responded to with more despair. Like if you watch the news lately, I mean, just everyone is, is despairing no matter what side you're on. It's just, I mean, that's what gets ratings, right? Outrage and despair. And we just keep feeding it more and more, and the chaos just levels up more and more. We live in a culture of chaos. It's because our culture lacks what Peter is calling us to pursue. At the uh, one of the key pieces of this text, he says, he's quoting from Psalm 34, and he says, let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him seek peace and pursue it. What Peter's calling us to when he's quoting from Psalm 34, the word that would have been used originally in the Hebrew is shalom. It's the way Jews still greet one another to this day. It's peace to you. That's what it means. But, it, but it's not some trite peace. It's, it's a peace that's grounded in the fear of the Lord. See, in, in Psalm 34, verse, um, it, Peter's pulling this out of Psalm 34, and right before the little passage that we have here in our text, the, the psalmist says, I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he goes directly into what Peter quotes, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him seek shalom. Shalom is this huge theme throughout Scripture. It's why Jews continue to use this greeting to this day, because it is what God is pursuing all throughout Scripture. It's the restoration of shalom. Not peace like in some kind of trite, peaceful way or tranquility or like the quieting of our minds. Like not, not that kind of peace, but much more substantial peace. Like shalom is this beginning to end theme of scripture, of wholeness. Like this word carries so, so much. And we could just, we could spend a whole sermon unpacking it, but it carries this idea of wholeness. Certainly an absence of hostility, but also Reconciliation fruitfulness, as God originally intended, between him and us, among ourselves, 
as well as a, a Because see, before sin entered into the world, before sin entered into the world, in the, in the first couple chapters of, of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see there was shalom. Like humanity walked with God in perfect relationship. There was, there was a wholeness of the relationship there. It wasn't broken by anything. There was, there was a wholeness to creation. It hadn't been broken down. The, the curses on, on man's work weren't there. The curses on, on women's labor and, and birth wasn't wasn't there. Fruitfulness, like it just happened. All right, like I, like I feel the effects of the fall when I go with plants in our household. I mean, let me tell you, like, like before the fall, I, they just like, they just simply kind of tended the garden and I would then. But this side of the fall, like everything dies. All right, like I've tried to tell my wife, let's not get plants because we kill them. We have the opposite of a green thumb. It's black. All right, like I got a succulent one time. And succulents are supposed to be the easiest thing in the world. And I was like, I'm going to put this in my office and like something's finally going to live. Nope, dead. Thankfully, my kids are still living. All right, so I can take care of something. But, but not plants, okay? Um, and so, look, we, shalom was destroyed. Like the world in which the, it was easy to do those things and have fruitfulness and wholeness is gone. Because in sin, our selfishness, our pride, and our fear, it dest- destroyed peace between us and God. It destroyed the peace that, we, that Adam and Eve had with one another. And it destroyed the fruitfulness of the creation. And Peter calls us to pursue shalom because of the power that, that a, a presence of shalom in the world can have. That a people of shalom, a people of peace Simply being a pr- peaceful presence can actually have the opposite effect of sin. Where sin destroys and breaks down, shalom, a presence of shalom, brings healing in the world around us. Edwin Friedman, who's a, a Jewish rabbi and counselor, he, he did a lot of family counseling, and then he also uh, did a lot of like actually writing on leadership and organizations, because what he noticed was in his early career with families, he would sit down, and they would, they would have all this, this chaos and mess, and he would try to, uh, to communicate um, particularly to those that were most troubled. He would try to fix the most problematic issues um, and go directly head on into those. And what he found was it just never worked. Like it, did, it hardly ever worked. The success rate was really low. Those families almost never came out of the spiral that they were in. But then he began to try a different approach rather than just continue to beat his head into the wall. He tried a different approach. And so he began to, to find the non-anxious presence whether that was an adult or a child even, he would find the non-anxious presence, the person that had the most peace within themselves, and he would begin to address them on how to, to, to grow in that and to be that. And, and what he found was that, that as that person became even more grounded in that non-anxious presence, that peaceful presence, that the whole family began to slowly but surely come out of that spiral, even if it was the child. And then when the child grew up and moved out, like he would see years later that the, the adults would actually go right back into the same old patterns of destructiveness. There was this power of the non-anxious presence. He saw it in the family, and then he began to transfer the ideas to organizations and saw it with leaders as well. This power of the non-anxious presence to actually take organizations and turn them around. And it's the same kind of vision that Peter has here, except much better than that. 
much more powerful. I mean, the vision of 2, 11 through 12 is that, that God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, could actually be this, not just for one family unit or one organization, but for the, all of society in the world. Not that we're going to see like perfect shalom, this side of Jesus coming back, but that we could have a radical transformative impact on our culture, our city, our campus, the world around us, if we would live as a peaceful, shalomic presence in the world. Jesus casts this kind of vision too. He says, Luke 13, 20 to 21, he says, what is the kingdom of God like? It is like yeast that is placed in flour that eventually just infects the whole, it actually changes the substance of the flower, right? And so that we are his kingdom people. And so imagine, imagine the impact of being a people of peace in the culture of chaos. What could it look like to be that non-anxious presence rather than just anteing up, like, like continuing to rev up the, the, the dialogue and the demeaning and the chaos and the anxiety? Rather than like fretting that the world's going to fall apart, we, we recognize that, hey, actually God has it all in control, so we have a reason to be p- at peace. That can change the relationships that we're around, and that can change a city. That can change the world. It's what Jesus intends by the kingdom of God coming into the world. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. God, that, that, we would, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, we won't reach it in perfection, but... But what could God do if we lived as a a people of peace in a culture of chaos? If the problem is, is that too often we are formed by the culture. We're not victims of it, and it's not what I'm talking about. Let's be clear. But we are active and passive participants in the culture, and as a result, we're formed more by it rather than forming it. Rather than being a people of peace inserted into the culture to be forming like yeast in flour, we become formed by the yeast of the culture into us. And, it, and it's not just a problem that's outside, it's actually a problem that starts right here, inside us. The problem of peace is our passions. In chapter 2, verse 11, this is where he starts this whole section. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In other words, he's saying our desires keep us from being a peaceful presence, from being a counterculture, light and darkness. He says abstain from those passions that wage war against us because they don't lead to peace. They don't lead to shalom. They destroy it. And there's two ways that that I believe our peace is destroyed by our passions. First off, our passions lead us to outrage, which is no peace at all, right? Right? Outrage is, is not the goal of peace. Like, that's the obvious one. So passions within us lead to outrage, repaying evil for evil and reviling for reviling, as, as Peter talks about in verse 9. Like, rather than blessing, as we're being called to, we, we just return in kind. Turn on social media, like, for half a minute, right? And you're just going to see it all over the place. But how many of us just jump right into that? It's because of our passions within us. It's our desires that drive us to that. For some of us, it's a passion for personal justification. Our pride to be declared, we're right and they're wrong. They're the problem, not me. Our passion for personal justification, our pride, will lead us to outrage, to prove ourselves, to demean others so that we can be lifted up. But for some of us, it may not be that passion for personal justification that leads you to outrage. 
For some of us, it's a passion for personal control based out of fear rather than pride. We feel out of control. And so we, we end up in outrage out of fear because we un- unleash on those that are in control. We're searching for some way to control, and so we unleash on those that should be taking care of things but are actually contributing to the chaos. And so we demean our government. We demean other leaders around us out of fear. Some of us are fearful of the unknowns. And so in order to find some sense of control, a passion and an idol in our lives, we find an enemy to fight, to give us some measure of purpose and control. And those passions whether it's pride of personal justification or fear of loss of personal control, they lead us to outrage and anger. And they destroy shalom. But then we also have passions that lead to compromise. All right, and so passions that lead to outrage is no peace, but passions that lead to compromise is a false peace. It appears like peace. It feels like it kind of on the surface, but the reality is is it's a false peace. And that's not what we're talking about in this passage. It's what Peter refers to when he quotes the psalmist. He says, let him keep his tongue from evil and let his lips, keep his lips from speaking deceit. When our passions lead us to compromise, we're in in a sense speaking deceit. Because we do it from a passion and a a couple different kinds of passions that it may fall into. One, a passion for personal approval or approval of others rather. We want the approval of others out of pride. And so as a result, we'll do whatever it takes to fit in. We'll do whatever it takes to fit in, and sometimes that means compromising what we really believe. It means compromising what the Word of God says. It means compromising on the truth. And whether we, we verbally express it or not, we're living a life of deceit. For some of us, it's, it's that, that passion for approval of others is, is I want to ensure I'm on the right side of history. So we compromise. We compromise our convictions in order to do so. But that may not be your struggle. Maybe your struggle is in this last passion here. And there's a variety of other passions, right, that could drive us to this. But the last one I want to address is a passion for the avoidance of suffering. It's based out of fear, just like for personal control. Passion for the avoidance of suffering sometimes leads us to compromise because we don't want to be insulted or outcast. We just, we want to get along with others because we don't like conflict. Like it makes us uncomfortable, it's messy, we just want to avoid it. And so, you know, the first passions, like they lead to outrage and those people tend to, to lean into conflict so they can win, right? But, but then on this side of it, we, we avoid conflict. And so out of fear of those things, we compromise or we hide what's true. If we struggle with these passions, church, and peace is not in us, how do we become a people of peace in a culture of chaos? How do we bless, right? That's what verse, verse 9 calls us to. Not, not returning reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. How do we turn away from evil and do good? As the psalmist says, seeking peace and pursuing it. Well, here it is. We follow the path of peace, which is a person. We follow the path of peace, which is a person. See, Jesus is the peaceful present to bring peace between us and God, to bring peace among ourselves, and to bring peace to the world in the form of shalom. 
See, verses 17 to 18 are, are such a, a key, like, crux of the text. Everything before it's kind of leading to it, and everything after it's flowing from it. It says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus is the peaceful presence of God come into the world. The path to peace and shalom, the path to becoming a people of peace in a culture of chaos is through Jesus. See, over and over again, we see Jesus embody a peaceful presence in the midst of chaos. He responded to anger and anxiety around him with the fear of the Lord. Attacks of the Pharisees, right? They come at him and they're trying to trip him up and, and he knows the heart of man and so he knows what they're doing, but he doesn't respond with demeaning them and undermining them as, as beings created in the image of God. Rather, he responds with questions. He does speak truth, but he also responds with questions. He doesn't respond reviling with reviling. But from a place of fear of the Lord, he's not seeking his approval from them, and so he's able in that moment to stay peacefully engaged. And then feeding of the 5,000. Like you see his disciples kind of running all over the place. There's like, they're wondering, like, how in the world are we going to feed these people? Because, because they're like, let's send them on, right? Jesus is like, let's just quit what we're doing here and send them on because we can't do this. And then Jesus is like, no, you provide it for them. They're like, what, we don't have the money, we don't have the food. Like, what are you talking about? There's no McDonald's down the street, Jesus. Like, how are we going to feed them? And Jesus says, out of the fear of the Lord, he sits there and thanks God for what they have, and God multiplies it. He ministers out of a place of peace. In the storms at sea, when they're on the boat and the disciples are running around crazy, where is Jesus? But asleep. Not because he doesn't care. Not because he doesn't care about them. That's what the disciples think. They're freaking out. Jesus, what? What are you doing? Do you not care about us? We're about to die. And Jesus is like, no, I just, like, I know the one source of all peace. I know the one who created the winds and the waves. Watch this. Be still. And boom, there's shalom. There's shalom in the creation because he's the person of peace. The pressures of the crowds where we would all be drawn in to just, like, when they say jump, we're going to jump because, man, all these people are following us. Jesus does the opposite. He has a fear of the Lord, not of man. And so he's able to pull away from the crowds and the demands of life to go to the source of life and spend time with his Father. And he goes to the mountain in the midst of all of that. See, Jesus lived out all that Peter talks about here, even to the point of death. Why? That he might bring us to God. That's the good news of the gospel that he went to the point of death. He lived a perfect life of peace. He went to the death in peace. Not that it was peaceful death, but that he was, he was at peace with the will of the Lord. He was suffering for doing good. He was the righteous for the unrighteous. And when he was mocked and reviled, he didn't return it with more mocking and more reviling because he was there that he might bring us to God. And so he died the death that we deserve because we destroyed God's shalom. And he, on that cross, became our substitute and payment for sin so that we could be back in relationship with God. Not by working ourselves into that place and being good enough, not by being perfect people of peace, but by letting Jesus be our peace between us and God, by trusting that what he did is enough. It's enough. And only he can give us life. The path of peace is a person and it's Jesus. 
And Peter centers his passage on this. And as I studied this passage, I couldn't get away from what just kept coming to mind. I feel like the Spirit just kept bringing to mind what might have very well been on Peter's mind while he was writing this text, which would have been a powerful moment in his life, I'm sure, in the upper room, in the Gospel of John, the last night before Jesus was betrayed. And Jesus makes this declaration that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I think like as we walk through this passage, what we see is, is Peter weaving these themes of Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. We see him start with the way that we're called to live, and then he gives us the life of Jesus and the promises of 12 to 14, and then he comes into the truth that we're called to proclaim about Jesus, and then he goes right back into the way that we're called to live of Jesus, and then the life that Jesus promises in that weird little passage at the end about preaching to spirits in prison and Noah and all that. Like, We'll get to that, but we're briefly going to touch on that. Um, but all of that is just this weaving of the way and the truth and the life of Jesus because the path of peace is a person, and it's Jesus. And so we're going to use John 14 to 16 as kind of a, a grid for us to understand what it looks like to follow that path of peace. First off, we must embody the way of Jesus. We must embody the way of Jesus. How do we live as a people of peace? Well, first off, verse 17, we suffer for doing good if it's God's will. Because it's better to do that than to suffer for doing evil. It's this idea here of a willingness to experience shame or betrayal or mocking when we do good. Because if it's God's will, then it's better than doing, suffering for doing evil. Walking in, in that is better than our way. Now look, I'm not advocating for being a pushover or a doormat here. Jesus wasn't that. He was instead, rather than just like passively submitting to what people were doing to him, what he was doing was he was actively submitting to God's will and pursuing God's will, no matter what the consequences were him for or were for him, because he was doing it for the sake of others and the glory of God. And so we must suffer for doing good. But it's not just uh, suffering for doing good like in verse 17. In, in verses 9 through 11, um, Peter's actually giving us the details of what that should look like. And he takes it beyond mere passive acceptance of suffering to actually active loving of enemies. In the way of Jesus, yes, it involves suffering for doing good, but also loving our enemies. Not just returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but... Instead, blessing. Don't react in kind, but respond with blessing. Reacting in kind never de-escalates, but as we already talked about, it escalates the chaos around us. There was a motivational speaker um, that was going around on the internet for a while, um, uh, yeah, a couple years back. He, was, he would go in and talk about bullying at school, and he would invite volunteers up on the stage, and, and he would say, insult me. And, and at first, the first go-around, he would throw insults back, and you would see how it just kind of escalated. But then the second go-around, he'd say, all right, let's try this again. You insult me. They would insult him. And then he would compliment them. And they would be thrown back a little bit, but then they would just lean back in, right? And they would insult again. And slowly but surely, like, they're getting less and less confident in their insults. And then they're just made so uncomfortable Right? A lot of times it's middle schoolers, so they're already awkward and uncomfortable, right? But, but then, um, but then they, they, they're so uncomfortable that they just stop and they actually walk away. <laughs> right? And, and so, this is what he's calling us to, is when we're insulted, that we return with blessing. And we see this in Jesus. 
on the cross, as he's been mocked and reviled, he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because the idea of blessing here is praying for God's favor over people. It's praying for God's favor over people. And on the cross, Jesus responded to anger with love. And so it starts with praying for the person. And just imagine if anything, maybe it doesn't de-escalate their heart and their outrage, but if anything, like, it certainly will de-escalate ours. Like, how can you continue to notch up the outrage when you're stopping in the midst of that and praying blessing over the person before God? When you're acknowledging the presence of God and asking God to bless them, it's going to de-escalate the anxiousness and the rage inside your own soul. And so we bless. But it starts with prayer, but it doesn't end there. Verse 11, right? It says, let him turn away from evil and do good, right? So we're not just to um, control our, our words and how we're, we're to not revile in return and instead bless, but we're also to do good to them, like active good. Jesus died on the cross for us while we were still his enemies. And we're called to bear our own cross in the world. And so it starts with prayer of blessing, but it also is lived out in a life of active blessing of others. So we embody the way of Jesus. We've got to suffer for doing good, and we've got to love our enemies. But in order to do that, we've got to also follow Jesus in this key way that he embodied a peace in his life. And we've got to be rooted in peaceful community. Verse 8. It's kind of an interesting start. feels a little disjointed to the rest of the passage Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is to the church. And then everything else is about how we live in relationship to the world around us. So what is he getting at? Well, these commands point us to another aspect of the way of Jesus. He didn't suffer or love on his own. He sustained his way of life by being grounded in a peace-filled community of the Father and the Spirit. Right? He pulled away to be with the Father. He walked in the presence of God day in and day out. And that's the ultimate community of peace, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're called to take part in that community, be rooted in that community, through being rooted in a community with one another. For the sake of endurance, as we suffer for doing good and love our enemies. So we don't just have community groups. To, to have community groups is like this, oh, this is thing churches do, or like we want to, you know, be able to have some fun together. We need to have some, you know, potlucks, because that's just part. I grew up Southern Baptist, and man, you just have meals over. Um, like, like community is just an excuse to have food, okay? So like, but that's not the point here. The point is we are given community so that we are rooted, like roots in a storm for an oak tree. Just oak trees are able to outlast most trees around them in the midst of crazy chaotic storms because they have this deep tap root that goes down into the ground and it's able to sustain them in the midst of the craziest of chaos around them. And that's what community as God's people is intended to be for us. As we suffer and love our enemies, we can only endure as we have that deep tap root. And so that's why, church, we need, we need community groups. We can't just come here and get filled up on the word and then go back out on our own. No, we need one another. And like, this is some community, but it's really just a picture of what we're called to do week, like 24-7 throughout the week with one another. And so community groups aren't even intended to just be an extra meeting, but rather those are intended to be the people that you're digging a, a deep root with so that you can be sustained through the storms so that you can love your enemies and suffer for doing good, so that when you do suffer, you come to that community and they bear your burdens with you. 
and then you can go back out into the world on mission. We have community because we have a mission, and it's in part to suffer for doing good and loving our enemies. And that's what embodying the way of Jesus looks like. But it's not just embodying a way and manner. Becoming a people of peace, a counterculture, requires also speaking the truth of Jesus. Verses 15 to 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Jesus came not just with a manner of life, but with a message. And so we're called, as we live out this suffering for doing good, as we love our enemies, that we wouldn't just sit there silently and take it, but rather we would speak the truth of Jesus, be ready to clarify why we suffer for doing good. That's how we invite others into the peace of Jesus. Otherwise, like they're gonna, they may be able to like experience some of the grace of God like, and, and the peace that we kind of emanate from our community, but, but they won't ever fully know and be able to come to know and enjoy the peace with God that you and I have unless we speak the truth. And so we've got to be ready to share the gospel. We've got to be ready to share the why that we're willing to suffer. If we, don't, if we just embody and we don't speak the truth, church, we're essentially telling the world around us, Look at the peace we have. Isn't it awesome? But you can go to hell. So we've got to be able to do both. We've got to be willing to embody the way of Jesus and speak the truth of Jesus. And then we've got to rely on the life of Jesus. In part, that's the community that we just talked about, but it's also something much more than that. It's what gives the community life itself. All right, this is where verses 18 to 22 come in. I know surprisingly, this passage about Noah and preaching to spirits, what Peter's getting at is how we sustain the kind of peaceful presence we're being called to. It's, it's rooted in remembering the hope and the suf- for our suffering for doing good. It's a secure peace in Jesus' resurrection. It's a secure peace that we have because of Jesus' resurrection. So we rely on the life of Jesus, the indestructible life of Jesus, that though he was crucified, he lives he lives. And verse 18 to 22, it, it is a somewhat confusing and controversial text, and a seeming, really, honestly, it feels like a tangent that Peter's going on, like this thing about baptism and all of this, it seems out of sorts with what Peter's talking about, but actually what he's doing here, when he brings up Jesus preaching to spirits in prison from Noah's day and, and this deliverance that Noah had and this deliverance we have through baptism and then this Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God with authority over all things, what he is communicating is that Jesus was proclaiming victory and that his victory is secure and that he's shown that because now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God with an authority and a security that we can enjoy, a security of peace because he's overcome the destructive force of sin and the spiritual powers of all kinds. And so it's, it's because of that final victory of the resurrection that we can rely on the life of Jesus. We can take confidence in the promises of 12 through 14. The promises that God's ears are open to our prayers. That he's for us. That there is no one that can harm us if we're zealous for doing good. But that if we suffer for righteousness sake, we will be blessed. That we don't have to fear anyone or be troubled because we're secure in the peace of Christ that was accomplished in his death and resurrection. It's a victory that's secure. It's not like a late game, you know, touchdown with 43 seconds left and Tom Brady's still sitting on the other sideline waiting to come out and you're like, oh, that's still way too much time. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan and that's how we lost for one game of the season. So, look, um, 
It's not like that. Like, it's not like this victory that seems like it might be secure. No, it's secure. Like, like we're not experiencing it as fullness yet, but it is secure. It is secure. And so we get to become a people of peace in a culture of chaos, but we've got to do it by embodying the way of Jesus, speaking the truth of Jesus, and relying on the life of Jesus. And it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Because the purpose of peace is a people. Like what God intends to make in us and do through us as a people is incredible stuff. First off, it's, as we wrap up, God invites us to be a people of peace for his glory. That's verse 12. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Church, in this culture of chaos, we have a unique opportunity, unlike any other time in our lives, to be a people of peace that reflect God's character to the watching world around us in a way that's going to like shock and confuse at times the world around us, make them maybe come back harder on us, and yet at the same time, they're not going to be able to deny that there is something different. And that difference is the character of God, and that our God can accomplish a peace that, that nowhere else can be found, that everything else in this life just creates more and more division in this chaotic culture we live in, and yet we can be unified, the left and the right within God's people, Cubs and Cardinals fan within God's people, and whatever it may be, that we can be unified in that, and we can reflect the peace of God and his goodness and love and grace to the world around us. We also, though, get to, to be a people for the good of all, right? That they would see our good deeds and glorify God willingly. Like, that's the idea there, that they wouldn't just be forced on their knees, but they would willingly do it. And so we have a unique opportunity to live as a contrast people in this chaos. If we live as a people of peace, suffering for doing good, loving our enemy, enemies, and unified together, the world will notice Anthem Church, may we pursue being a countercultural force on our campus and in our city. Be salt and light in the darkness. Sure, we have plenty of room to grow in the path of peace, and it is not an easy journey. But church, join me in embodying the way of Jesus, speaking the truth of Jesus, and relying on the life of Jesus. Church, may, may we pursue becoming a people of peace in a culture of chaos together for the glory of God and the good of all. Because it is worth it. It's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thankful for your peace, your shalom that you reestablish in Jesus, that you entered into this world to give us peace with you, to allow us to experience peace with one another and to have a hope of final peace and shalom at the end of days, God. Lord, I pray that we would be a people of peace in a culture of chaos, that we would, would, would have a transformative effect on the world around us. God, help us to turn from the passions in our own flesh and turn to doing good and embodying the way of Jesus, speaking the truth of Jesus. God, for your glory and the good of those who don't yet know you, and I pray all of this in Jesus' name.